0: This morning's scripture readings are from Romans 8 and Galatians 5. Romans 8 verses 1 through 4 can be found on page 1717 of the Pew Bible. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Galatians 5 verses 24 to 26 can be found on the bottom of page 1773. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other.
1: You want me to talk? Yeah.
2: Okay. Put me under the lights!
1: <laughs> oh. I'm Beth Williams. I'm a mom. I've got four kids: 17, 12, 10, and surprise, seven months.
0: <laughs>
1: but one of the things that I've learned about this is that walking with Jesus is a lot of improvising. The Jesus Lunch got started during preseason of high school football, and um, there was a car accident. Thankfully, all of them were okay, but it was a little bit of a wake-up call for us as parents and our kids to be like, holy cow, like, you could have died easily today. And not just you, but your friends. And do your friends really actually know what you believe? Do they know, like, if they were to die today, where would they end up? So we said, let's take our kids lunch and then have them invite their friends. And we're gonna go through the basics of Christianity. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Is there a heaven and hell? What is the Bible? Is the Bible true? All of those basic things. Um, And so that's what we did. We invite, we told our kids, invite your friends, we'll bring food. And that's how the Jesus Lunch got started. We started off with 40 kids that first week between our kids inviting their friends that went up to hundred the next week It went to 150 the following week. Um, Just this past Tuesday, we had 625 students and we'll plan for close to 700 next week. We were super invested in our own kids of how to help them navigate through high school of you have all of the world right there. You have temptations of Everything, everything the world has to offer is right there in high school and you're trying to navigate your own child through that So you're like bringing a few more on is not a big deal looking back It's so clear at that moment. You were just kind of like sure I can make cookies for 40. Oh sure a hundred cookies No problem I would also say though that there have been numerous times where we're like, oh my goodness. This is exhausting So the summer we all fasted, we prayed, and we got back together and we said, okay, so what do we do? What do we do moving forward? I kind of came to this conclusion. What would be more important and more impactful for the kingdom than this, where there's hundreds of kids showing up every week to hear the gospel? I have often thought about the Jesus Lunch that I would look back with regret if I hadn't done it. Because of my own kids, I have a high schooler and I want him to know Jesus, and I want his friends to know Jesus. And I think the best part of this whole thing will be someday standing in heaven at that gate and watching. We pray that hundreds of kids from Middleton High School will be there because we said, sure, I'll take you lunch each week. Sometimes it's worth the cost. Well, not sometimes, actually always.
2: everybody. So this is week six of substance, and we're going to talk about uh, keeping in step with the Spirit this Sunday. If you've been all six, great. There's like a cookie you get on the way out. But if you haven't, um, let me just catch you up if you haven't been here. Uh, One of the things that Jesus taught was that the normal thing that human beings do is they just want to have everything— and so they just keep all their options open They try to have everything And the problem is, is that you don't have everything you, you end up with nothing yourself Because what happens is by trying to get everything You can't be one person with integrity You get torn in so many pieces That you're all torn apart inside Even if you're grabbing a hold of lots of things in your life And it's, t- it's really destructive And you feel anxious and upset and worried And angry and frustrated at God And resentful and you, you, all your compulsion To do all kinds of things And it's really a terrible way to live And Jesus said... That's what will always happen if you try to have me and the world, right? He called it the God Mammon. He's like, the problem is not that is not your first religion that you believe in Jesus. The problem is you have two religions. (laughs) You believe in the God of God Jesus, and you believe in the God Mammon, and you're trying to worship both, and you just can't have two masters. You can't be torn in two forever. You have to be single, right? And he said the way to do that is to throw away the God Mammon and to seek God— and his kingdom and his righteousness. And then everything else you need will be added to you, the Bible says. And his kingdom is what he's doing, right? His righteousness is his character. Now, um, so what we, the way we talk about this is in order to pursue seeking God in his kingdom and his righteousness, there are like the four marks of spiritual substance, but they are also four pursuits. If you want to pursue God and not mammon, there's basically four pursuits. If you read the whole Bible, that just keep coming up again and again. There is self-sacrificial love, that the goal or end of everything that we do is self-sacrificial love, the true good of another, right? The second is the mind of Christ, that it says in Romans 12, that to be unconformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so we'll know what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is, right, his kingdom and his righteousness. That we have to do, that there has to be a certain kind of strength because Worshiping mammon produces a kind of ungodliness that leads to weakness. We become these frothing, like, vaporous, brittle, unflexible kind of creatures that can't really, like, actually don't have the strength to do anything, right? We, we want to be loving. We think we know what the right thing to do is. We can't do it, right? And so God has to build us a certain kind of virtue so that we can overcome the flesh, the compulsion that we do whatever we want, but also so that we don't need a law to control us. We're supposed to be free of the law, too, because what freedom is supposed to look like spiritually is that we can do all the good, and laws can never send us into all the good because they have to constantly control us because laws are for bad people, right? And then lastly is in step with the Spirit. So one way you could think about this is is that self-sacrificial love, that's a pretty concrete thing, right? The mind of Christ, whatever Jesus teaches that he believes in, right? That's pretty straightforward, that virtuous freedom, that's—I mean, that's a pretty— for, And then the third is—or the fourth is um, keeping in step with the Spirit. That just sounds as slippery as an eel. I mean, it just—like, the other three are pretty concrete ideas, but then we're talking about now is like, you're just like, I'm dancing with the Spirit through life. It just sounds like this ridiculously, like, abstract, ephemeral, slippery idea, right? And so let me try to give a definition, and then we'll expand on it. One way you could define it in relationship to the other three marks— would say, keeping in step with the Spirit is virtuously improvising the law of love through the mind of Christ in the Spirit's power, right? Or if you could shorten it and say it this way, keeping in step with the Spirit is doing the mind of Christ trusting in the Spirit's power, okay? Just five things I want to say about this, and we'll spend most of our time on the third one. Before we get to that, in relationship to what this looks like, because you'd be like, well, where does this fit in to how we see it? So just imagine, like, a craftsman building something or a painter painting, right? They have in their mind the idea of what they want to paint, right? That, you could say, is, like, um, the goal they have in mind or the mind of Christ, right? They're like, this is what we're doing, okay? Now, in order to do it, they have to actually work. They have to actually do the work. They've got to cut the tile, lay the floor, do the painting, right? That's the labor of love, right? It takes, it takes sacrifice, right? But in order to do a good painting, there has to be some skill. You got to have some muscle memory with the brush. You got to know which brush to use. You got to know how to mix the paint. You got to know, you got to know all that stuff. You got to be strong in the thing. And strength doesn't just drop out of the air. It's, it's developed, forged, right? But then there's, when you're painting, there's a thousand or ten thousand little decisions that are made all through the process. I want to make that red a little darker, I need to use this brush, not that brush. This brush is a little too wet. I'm on a roll here. I'm going to keep going. That didn't go well. I need to take a break. There's just all tons of little decisions that you have to make. And that is fundamentally part of the fluidity of living, right? Doing anything. And your life is full of that. And so there has to be a component of your spirituality that is like that, that takes into account the fundamental fluidity of everything, that you're constantly making decisions all over the place. In that sense, that's how keeping in step with the Spirit functions, okay? Now, first thing, it's not that mystical. I know, keeping in step with the Spirit, it sounds mystical. It's not that mystical. Last year in November, I did two sermons on Galatians 5 and 6. You can go back and listen to them if if you want to on the website. Um, But I basically said, here's what keeping in step with the Spirit means in Galatians 5, which is where it's found. So I preached on Galatians 5 and 6. So here's what it means. It means... Actually loving other people and how you express your faith It means longing for real righteousness Like really wanting to be like Jesus Instead of being like a wicked idiot, right? Responding to the Spirit's desire So like when you know God wants to do something When you know what's right You admit to yourself that you know what's right Instead of lying to yourself, right? Fourth, or fifth You kill the flesh That is, when you know what's not right You say no And you stomp on the head of that thing And then Last is you keep in step with the Spirit, which is essentially doing all that stuff, right? And then right after this comes this stuff in chapter 6, which looks like this is like how we do it together, right? You humbly restore people who have spiritually failed. You take weight from people who are weak in their life, like they can't handle something. You don't take all the weight. You take the portion they can't handle until they can handle it, right? You help bear the weak. You're, you're thankful. It says, be generous with those who invest in you spiritually. That is, you're thankful, Right? And then you recognize that God can't be mocked in the flesh. I mean, that's pretty straightforward in terms of certain— and right, that God brings a spiritual harvest, and you sow seeds everywhere. You're like, well, Nick, sow seeds everywhere. Like, in those last three, those are a little bit— those are a little bit spiritually talk, aren't they? except whats so what is sow—what does sow seeds everywhere mean, right? So, sowing seeds means, basically, there's some end you think would be good, and you do the very first concrete thing that could lead to that end, Right? So, like, Jesus lunch video, right? First concrete thing is, hey, do you, maybe you could invite your friends and, like, I'll make a bunch of cookies, right? Like, you can't know what that's going to lead to. You just know that is the good action that could bring a good end that is the very next thing right in front of you. A lot of times that's, like, apologizing. Actually listening to somebody when they talk, right? Reading your Bible and seeing what it does to you. Things like that, right? Okay. Second thing, so it's not that mystical. The second is, one of the reasons it's not that mystical is because the work of the Spirit is recognized by its quality, mainly that is what the Bible says, by its fruits, okay? Now here's, here's what I mean by that. How do you know the Spirit is even present to even know how you would keep in step with Him? How many people absolutely know that they're feeling the Spirit right now? You absolutely, 100% know, you have a feeling in your body, and you know it is the Holy Spirit and nothing else. This is participatory. (laughs) Okay, one, two, okay. How many people are hungry right now? All right, yeah, you see see where we're going with this? Okay, great. Now, so how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? How do you even know? Okay, it turns out, here's how you know. Jesus says— That if you put your trust in him, he will give you the Holy Spirit. So that means if you—so that means it's contingent on two things. One, whether or not you put your trust in Jesus. And two, whether or not God is believable, trustworthy, right? He does what he says. That's pretty straightforward, right? So if you put your trust in Jesus, God, who is the trustworthy one—he's the one who, like, invented trust— Right? Said he would give you a spirit So that means if you come to Jesus You receive the Holy Spirit Now you can say But what if my faith is like a total sham And I'm all self-deceived about it Whatever Does that just mean I have the Holy Spirit Even if I'm like not even really a believer at all And I'm just pretending? That's the second part, right? Because if we believe in Jesus And according to his promise He gives us his spirit The question is not Is he trustworthy? The question is whether or not we have faith In any kind of real sense Well here's what happens according to his promise, the Holy Spirit comes in, he does stuff, and then what comes out? Fruit. Right? So Jesus said this thing that became a kind of a popular saying. He said, listen, you need to watch out for false prophets or false teachers, because they'll come to you like sheep, but inside the sheep's clothing, they're ravenous wolves. Now, that, that's like, that's not how I want to go. I don't want to be like walking in the field and be like, look at the Sheep, And then this wolf comes out and rips me to pieces. My blood is splattering everywhere. That sounds like a terrible way to go. Like, this sounds like Jesus is trying to get my attention, right? He says, this is what you do. Okay, listen. Give me false teachers and false prophets and people trying to, like, confuse the heck out of you, right? So this is what you do. Like, he says, look, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people—okay, this next part is participatory. It's a question. Like, you can have a question to answer with Jesus, Ready? Right? Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes— No! Or figs from thistles? No! Right? You guys are so smart. (laughs) Likewise or similarly, right, every good tree bears good fruit and every bad tree bears good fruit. In fact, it's impossible for a bad tree to bear good fruit or or a good tree to bear bad fruit. Right? Now, it's not that hard to grow enough in spiritual maturity to tell the difference between a good apple and a rotten apple. It takes a little bit more maturity to tell the difference between a good apple and a wax apple. Because people fake goodness all the time because they know darn well, show me, don't tell me, right? You like, you, people prove what, they re- what they're really like by their actions So they try to fake stuff a lot But listen, part of this discernment, right This ability to spiritually see that the spirit brings In spiritual maturity as we grow in substance Is you'll be able to tell the difference between both Not just good and rotten, but good and wax Fake You'll just, and it'll be almost intuitive it just, you'll smell it all over the thing Spiritually speaking, which I know is a metaphor Okay, good so another—so the way—so then Paul applies this to our life in the Spirit, and he says, So, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Okay, so generally speaking, we would not put generally too argumentative and hosted an orgy in the same level— of indecency, right? But what—and Paul, Paul isn't saying they're the exact same thing. What he's saying is all of these things are produced by the same thing. They're all produced by the flesh. They're all the fruit of the flesh. When the flesh does what it wants to do, it produces all this stuff and stuff like it. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit—of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you could add to that and the like as well. Right, it's just like the work, the acts of the flesh, and the fruit of the spirit are meant to be overlapping. So fruits are acts, and acts are fruits. So when you do something, that is the fruit of something, and the fruit of the spirit are all demonstrated in action through love, joy, peace. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Again, such things. Now, here's the thing to make concrete about this. He says that the difference in these fruits to somebody who has any kind of meaningful spirit, spiritual maturity, maturity are what? Say it with me. Obvious. But if we have any kind of meaningful spiritual maturity that's growing in us, the, what's, ha, what's coming out of somebody's life and what it, what it points to as the spirit that has control inside of them, to anyone growing in discernment becomes increasingly obvious. And actually, you don't have to be very spiritually mature for it to be obvious. You just have to have just one master. Because if you have two gods, you're going to constantly be arguing for both of their perspectives. The minute you throw away the God-mammon and worldliness, and you look to Jesus and seek his kingdom and his righteousness, what he is for and not for becomes very painfully obvious. And the works of the flesh are obvious for what they are, and the fruit of the Spirit is obvious for what it is. Now, one of the things that this assumes, why does the Bible talk mainly about these two things? If you read the entire New Testament and you search the whole Bible for what it teaches about the work of the Holy Spirit, you will find a lot of talk about fruit and the effects of the Spirit and transformation and a lot of talk about the promised, sealed, given Holy Spirit and you will read virtually nothing about the felt Holy Spirit. Why is that? Can you feel the Holy Spirit? Sometimes, right? Do you constantly? Well, nobody raised their hand right now, right? So either our church, like, stinks, right? Or, like, it's not—and here's, here's why. It turns out that the Holy Spirit is a spirit, not a hormone. Okay? Like, it, it is not fundamental to the presence of the Holy Spirit, apparently, that you feel him. And yet, his presence— is dwelt on in terms of promised, because you could go through life with the Spirit, with you, and not know He's there. If you are a Christian and you don't feel the Holy Spirit, that does not mean He's not there. And if you think it means He's not there, it's actually because you're listening to a mentality of temptation that is twisting and confusing the truth. The reason why we're told he'll be present and we're told we'll see his fruits is precisely because you will not feel his presence most of the time. I'll get to why in just a minute. Now, the third one—and, okay, this is going to be hard for some of you to hear, okay? And I'm going to try to be careful— But this is a very important point that we need to recognize as Christian people because to misunderstand it creates an enormous amount of spiritual damage in the lives of people disproportionately among the young, okay? And that is this, that walking in the Spirit isn't the same thing as hearing God. Walking in the Spirit isn't the same thing as hearing God. Did I just say that you can't hear God? I did not just say that. And I actually don't believe that. But these two are not the same thing They are very different things Okay Walking in the spirit Or keeping step with the spirit Is everything related to the Holy Spirit Hearing God Is a thing that happens To some people sometimes In specific situations Now the Bible will not let you get away from this Because there's a whole gift in the New Testament Which is just sometimes people hear from God kind of regularly And they're supposed to tell other people What they're hearing And it's called the gift of prophecy And it's right there in the New Testament So it's not like the New Testament teaches that you can't hear from God. But here's, here's what, here's what I need to tell you. If hearing from God is a large part of your spirituality, or you've been told it should be a large part of your spirituality, let me just ask you this simple question. Can you name any passage in the Bible that teaches you you should hear from God? Like you should hear sentences and paragraphs, like in syntax, of clear language messages of what you ought to do. Because you see, that's what a lot of evangelical Christians think following the Spirit is like, that God is going to tell them a sentence that's an imperative, go do such and such, or encouraging maybe like, you're fantastic, I love you, or like like there's going to be like a sentence, and it's going to come in, you're going to know exactly what to do, and the question is just whether or not you'll do it, whether or not you'll be obedient. And if you're obedient, God will bless you and help you and whatever. And if you don't, then the Spirit will like go away until you do the last thing he told you. I've heard all kinds of stuff, okay? And here's what you're going to find when you read the whole Bible. If you Google the Bible hearing God, you will get a pile of Bible studies on all the Bible passages that talk about hearing God, okay? None of the verses say you should hear God. None of them! Okay, let me me argue this with you for a minute because I know for some of you this is going to be difficult. I'm going to use the best one. Okay? And I'm going to show you that's not what it means Okay, so in John 10, right Jesus is talking about how he is the great shepherd And, that, and, and, so, and so he's explaining what that means And, and I'm going to read you three portions of that chapter He says, the watchman opens the gate That's the pen that holds the sheep For him, that's the good shepherd And the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Verse 16, he says, I have sheep that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also, and they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock with one shepherd. And then, after people attack him for saying this, he turns to those people who are attacking him and he says, This Jesus answered, I did tell you the thing that they want, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And so I have, I cannot tell you how many preachers or Bible state or or well-meaning believers who are trying to help other people say, so you see what's going on here is that if you believe in Jesus and you belong to him and you have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is a teacher and so he's going to teach you stuff and like you'll, there'll be all kinds of voices inside of you, right? There might be like the voice of the flesh and there might be the voice of your own conscience and there may be the voice of like your mom judging you from years ago and that smart professor that you're imitating but pretending you're not and like there's all kinds of like voices, so to speak, in your head. But there'll be one voice, the voice of God, the good shepherd Jesus and the person of the Spirit and it will be differentiated from all those others. You'll know it's his voice Voice. Because his sheep know his voice, right? And so you'll know it, and you just follow it. You see, following Jesus, it's not that complicated, right? Now here's the problem, though. There's two problems. One is, that has nothing to do with what this passage is teaching. Nothing. And secondly, the result of that teaching is great for the people who cope with it Well. If they look inside themselves, and there's all kinds of voices in there that they think are from God, and they're like, I heard from God, and they, it's really—they're really happy about it. And then they go off, and like 20 years later, they confess to their pastor that they thought God told them to marry this guy, and he turned out to be a jerk, and blah, 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 okay? Or for people who have the gift of prophecy, or people who God speaks to a lot. They think it's fabulous. And for—but they're the false positives. For everybody else, it creates neuroticism. Constantly. They're just constantly full of this neurosis. that, like, They have no idea which voice inside of them is the voice of Jesus, and so they, they're probably not as sheep because they can't figure out which one of the crazy voices is Jesus, and they're just angry and upset. I cannot tell you how many people I've, I know that have lost their faith or don't believe God speaks at all. I mean, you might be listening to me and be like, Nick, you're going to teach people not to listen for God's voice. No. No, no, no. Because one of the things that causes people not to hear God is in their 20s or teens or when they first become a Christian to like desperately plead for God to speak to them in a way that's self-affirmingly obvious so that they can know and follow it and then it doesn't happen and they get so frustrated and angry and sad and hurt and they believe, well, Jesus must not care about me or maybe I must be doing something wrong or maybe I didn't listen to him last time he talked and he's not even going to talk to me again until I do that thing but I don't even know what that thing was and I don't even know how to get back on track. I don't know what to do, right? And they stop listening for God. They start hating God for abandoning them, which he's never done. They pitch their faith because people preach that as certainly as they preach other things, when our views of how God speaks to us are our most speculative theology. It might be right, but the Bible doesn't teach hardly anything about it. And so, almost all of our, like, firm beliefs about it, we've, like, put together from, like, narrative passages. They're like, well, you know, Paul, he had that dream, and the guy from Macedonia was like, come over here, and, like, they, I had a dream that I was thinking about doing something, right? Fine, maybe that was God. I don't even know, but neither can you. Like, I mean, we got—that's why you, like, tell your friend, and then you pray about it, and you see if you have peace. There's, like, all kinds of ways to sort out the will of God. And one of the reasons why we're open to taking this passage this way is because we don't believe the doctrine it actually teaches. Because you know the doctrine that's really about— the doctrine the passage actually teaches? It's the doctrine of election. That's the doctrine it teaches, that God chooses those that belong to him before they even know it, and those people belong to him, and he will save them, and therefore you can't boast because if you're a Christian, it's not because you're a good person— It's because God chose you and when the good shepherd came by and he spoke, you recognized his voice. You were like, wait, I know that voice. Or when somebody told you a bunch of lies, you were like, I don't think I know that voice. And you ran off. Right? You're like, how do you know that, Nick? Here's how I know that. Because of the middle verse where Jesus says, I have sheep sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. Now, it's always fun when people speculate that that is, that was referring to aliens, right? <laughs> so the sheep pen is the, earth, is the whole, like, earth, right? And Jesus, he's like, I got other sheep pens. He's like, are there, what are there, people in Uranus or something? I mean, like, I don't know what this is even about. That's not what it means, right? What it means is, is that throughout Jesus' whole—I shouldn't use that planet, sorry. Um, throughout this whole, <laughs> throughout the, the whole earth, right, there is one group of people, Racially designated as the people Of God, the Jews, right? And so Jesus Has spent his whole ministry teaching to Jewish people About redemption, right? And he's saying Look, look, I have sheep in other Pastures, meaning among all the crazy Gentiles You hate, the barbarians and the Greeks And the the Parthians And like all these people, people who You don't even know exist in distant Islands He says, I have Present tense Sheep in those pastures right? And he's, sa- he's, sa- he's saying, I'm going to go as a shepherd, and he means through future missionaries for the most part. I'm going to go, and I'm going to speak my message. My voice is going to come through it. And you're be like, no, Nick, it's got to be like the voice, the texture, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's baloney, right? Like, th- you can't hear the vocal texture of the voices in your head. It's not like you hear a Greg Walter's voice in there, like, this is— Jesus talking, and you're like, oh yeah, that's gotta be it. It's deep enough. Like, it's not like that. You can't hear vocal contour in your head. All you can hear is earnestness, right? Person, whether the voice says you or I or we, right? Which, of course, your brain very—your consciousness very easily makes up whatever it wants to, right? Or content, right? Well, earnestness isn't going to solve it. And whether, if the voice in your head says you, that doesn't mean it's not you right? That's really naive to think that way, right? So it's content, which means you know from the content of the message it's God's voice Which just means it's true in most cases Well, is God the only capable being of speaking truth inside of you? Well, not if redemption works at all If God regenerates the human heart and gives you his spirit and builds in you spiritual substance, the hope is is that increasingly, in awakened, enlivened human conscience, the true new humanity God is making you hopefully can say some, like, decent stuff. Right? But Jesus—and remember, Jesus, you get to the end of that passage, and Jesus says, Listen, the reason why you won't listen to me, he's saying to the teachers that are like, We don't like you. He's like, Listen. The point of this whole teaching I just did is is that the reason you won't listen to me is because you're not my sheep. He said, I told you the truth. I did the miracles. And he says, what does he say? He says, those speak about me, but you won't listen because you aren't my sheep. He doesn't say, if you don't listen, you won't be my sheep. He says, the reason you won't listen is because you're not my sheep. You see, the point of the passage is is that if you've come to Jesus and you believe in him and you've put your trust in him and you're his sheep, it's because, not because you're a good person, but because he chose you when you heard his voice, you recognized it as the shepherd, and you came to the shepherd and he took you up into his arms and he says, no one can tear you away from me. Right? So listen, you don't have to hear God's voice in your head or your heart once in your entire life for you to know that you have heard his voice and you are the sheep in his arms that can't possibly be taken out of them. Do you understand me? Now, in addition to that, you might hear God's voice. That'd be great. But if you know that's not the central thing, you can allow for it. You can be open to it, but you won't be full of neurosis about it. And so God can speak to you, he might not speak to you. He might speak to you through the Bible. He might speak to you through your friend. He might do all kinds of stuff. He might speak to you in his providence. He might speak to you by allowing an enormous amount of suffering into your life. He might speak to you in lots of different providential or direct ways. Who knows? God is very creative. But it will be specifically fitted for exactly what you need to grow in substance. Right? Now, one of the places this ends up taking us is then, okay, well, Nick, if it's not me hearing, like, God's voice in my head, then what is it—then how does it happen? Because isn't the Spirit inside of me, and doesn't he do things inside of me? So, like, what is it? What is it? What is it? How does it work? Then are you saying, like, it's more vague? Right? And If you look at the way the Bible talks about it, it uses these idioms that you just— you got to put a few of them together to make sense of it. So, for example, it says this, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh— for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. So you see, that word desires is meant to be in both of those. He doesn't use the word twice, but the idea is, is that the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. Right? Now, what that means is, is that there is a way in which the Spirit and the flesh express their desire inside of us. Okay? Now, the way, the way Paul talks about this in Romans 8 is this way. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their— and look at this phrase— minds set on what the nature, that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Okay, you got that? So there's these desires that are expressed. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the desires of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the desires of the Spirit. Right? Now, and then it says this. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace, right? And then it uses controlled from there on in the passage, which is very interesting because it uses mindset and controlled interchangeably. Now, that's really interesting because we wouldn't think of it that way. If I I said I have my mindset on the Packers this afternoon, you wouldn't think that that meant my mind is controlled by the Packers, right? It's it's partly a misunderstanding of how we make decisions. Now, imagine for a minute you went into—let's say you liked ice cream— And you went into an ice cream shop, and there were like 15 varieties of ice cream. Now, I know that's not very many, but let's say they sold other things, right? And so you walk in, and you you, you narrow it down immediately to two options. There's like a roasted coconut option, and then there's the like always faithful mint chip, okay? And let's say they don't have a good chocolate. All right, so you're going to make a decision between the two of them. Now, how do you make the decision between the two of them? All right, now, in some ways it might be complicated, but in, you know, well, I remember this when I was a kid, whatever. Ultimately, it comes down to this one of the two flavors holds the prevailing preference in your heart. It might be by 100%, it might be by 12%, it might be that you like the mint chip 50.2167452%, and the other one, you know, 45-something, right? The appropriate subtraction. (laughs) But whatever the difference between the two options— One of them prevails as the preference of your heart Okay, that language is from Jonathan Edwards' essay The Nature of True Virtue He said, we we all think of our decisions as free and so on and all of that But but he said, ultimately in every decision The heart has a prevailing preference And whatever that is, is what you're going to do if you sin, it's because the sin and what you think you'll get out of it is the prevailing preference of your heart. If you don't, it's because you think following the Lord is going to be— is the, and what, what will result of that, and what that means is the prevailing preference of your heart. Everything that you do shows that something based in it is the prevailing preference of your heart. It is the thing your mind is set upon, and therefore it controls your decision. And therefore, what your mind is set upon is what controls your actions. And either your mind is set upon the desires of the flesh— or the desires of the Spirit? And so the question is, in keeping a step with the Spirit, is as these desires are expressed within you, how do you pay attention to them? Now, that's a little bit complicated because the question is, like, why would it be like that? Why wouldn't the voice of the Spirit ring completely distinct? Okay. I'm entering the realm of speculation now. Okay? This is from 20 years of studying the Bible and theology and trying to find a clear answer for this. But this is, this is the best I've come up with. Okay, I believe that the, the way we're meant to live improvisationally, walking with the Spirit, requires a very high level of maturity. Okay? So think about improvisation. So like, there's a guy, Scott Kyle, who goes to church here, and he, he's an artist, right? Now he spent years and years and years trying to become better as an artist. Now, what that means is— now, does he have more options or fewer options than, like, a kid that doesn't know anything about art? That's, that's kind of a hard question, right? Does his knowledge of the field open up ideas that the kid would never know? Well, see, in some ways it narrows his options, right? Because as he got better at art, he, like, got rid of all the options that stink, right? So he doesn't sit down at a campus and be like, maybe I should finger paint the heck out of this thing. Like, that's not what he does. Right? His skill and his capacity and his ability and his experience radically narrows, right? And within that, he can do a lot of things based on his abilities, right? And it actually, in improvisation, it's maturity that makes improvisation possible. So, for example, one of the worst places to look for improvisation is a fifth grade girl basketball game. Okay? Because they can't do anything. Right? And so like you, you like throw a girl a pass and she's trying to, I mean, all that's going through her mind is not like I need to read the defense here and maybe I'm going to get a side screen and I could go for a baseline jump shot, but that's only if I get it right. None of that's happening. She's like, catch the ball, catch the ball. People are watching. That's all that's going through her mind. Right? And then when she catches the ball, what is she going to do? Well, she's going to do what she always does. She's going to travel. That's what she's going to do. Okay? Because there's just, there's not enough skill. There's not enough capacity for improvisation. Improvisation requires maturity. So, so don't you see that if the Holy Spirit spoke in an utterly distinct voice into your head in sentences, and then you just did it every time, that's like reading sheet music. It's not, it's not actually creating the capacity for improvisation, improvisation virtuosity. You can't do it. You're just reading music. And so so the Holy Spirit is like writing notes and you're just playing them, and that gets you good at playing notes, but it's not getting you good at like seeing what the band is doing and figuring out what's going on and knowing what you're capable of and doing the stuff. Like it doesn't make improvisational people. It doesn't make free people. It doesn't make creatures of, of intuition and initiative. It doesn't, it doesn't create these fully human, mature creatures. We have this idea that accepting the gospel as a child is the same thing as being per- perpetually immature. It's like a proof text for being an idiot. And it's, that's not what any of that means in the Bible. The, God created us to have this fullness of our humanity. That's why he doesn't just give us the Holy Spirit, but he regenerates Our broken and dead spirit. So that he remakes the humanity that's broken and lost through the infused power of the Holy Spirit. What that means is, is that temptation and the desires of the flesh are coming through your viscerality and saying, I want this. And yet the Holy Spirit is coming through the human faculties that he's maturing. And so he's coming in through your, your, your reawakened spirit. He's coming in through your retuned conscience. He's coming in through new thoughts you're thinking as your mind is being conformed to Christ. He's coming through your motivation to actually live in self-sacrificial love. And so he comes through that remaking it all as he speaks and acts. His desires are meant to come through this maturing work. And so what does his voice sound like? Well, if it comes, th- it's coming through your spirit and conscience and mind. What's it going to sound like? It's going to sound like your spirit and conscience and mind. But but doesn't that mean you like can't hear God or like what it what it means is that if we walk by the Spirit according to the mind of Christ, it ultimately doesn't matter. If you know what's being said is true, if you know it's what you're created for, if you know what goes with the mind of Christ, then you can be assured both, both in most cases, especially if you can't discern the two voices from each other, it's both the Spirit working in you and the result of the Spirit working in you, which is encouraging. It's great because it means your voices are aligning. At least in this situation, you'll probably screw up in five minutes. But right now— The promised spirit is doing something in you and it will produce fruit. And the reason why that's the case is because the spirit doesn't just want you reading his sheet music. The spirit actually wants to make a jazz musician out of you. He wants improvisation. He wants you to be able to do stuff. And you see, when that's possible... Well then a lot is possible But the, the reason why this is so important Because you might be like, Nick, what, that just sounds like you're Complicating things, it doesn't need to be complicated No, no, that's not true You see, because if you believe A confused doctrine about hearing God Which is like If you've been listening in an evangelical church for a while Like, it's pretty likely that's what you got Okay It does a number of really negative things It, may, it causes you Unwarrantedly To read your doctrine of hearing God back into all the passages in the Bible about walking in the Spirit. Causing you, through like a self-fulfilling prophecy, to read all of those passages kind of wrong. And seeing all of those passages saying, God's going to speak to me, God's going to speak to me. That's how, that's how God's going to do all this stuff. It's of course because God's going to speak to me. But that's what none of those passages say. In fact, most of them, if you're really careful about the logic of them, say the opposite. That you will experience a phenomenon of transformation and you will know because of God's promise that it's the work of the Spirit. So in the Venn diagram, the big circle is the work of the Spirit and the little circle inside that is God speaks to you and you learn how to hear his voice. Which for some of us, we might never experience. And that has nothing to do with whether or not you're in his arms and can never be torn out. Nothing. Does that make sense? The second thing is, is that like, it creates a real problem in relationship to listening to your own voice. So mature people are introspective and know themselves well enough to deal with conflicts within their own mind. Immature people, for the most part, listen to the loudest voice inside of them, which is usually the voice of their visceral whatever, and not the voice of conscience. Consciousness is like very matter-of-fact. Like, no, shouldn't do that. So one example in a book that I, that I read a while back, um, there's a guy who says, I, I can't tell you how many times, um, I, he said, he's like, I was talking to this young woman, and she was dating this guy, and she really liked him, and she had really nice dates with him. But like, when she would pray about it, she'd be like, well, he's kind of controlling, and like, I don't really know. And she's like, she's like, I can't tell if God is telling me that I should break up with this boy, right? To which the professor said, that has nothing to do with it. You're telling me you know you should break up with this boy. The heck does your weird doctrine of the God speaking to you? You're 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 so closed off to your own maturing process with your bad notion of how God speaks that you don't realize that the Holy Spirit is probably enlivening your conscience and your own acquired wisdom in the Spirit to help you know if a relationship is, is emotionally healthy or that it has a future. You know God has transformed you enough and matured you enough that you know to break up with this guy. And you see, if you have this, like, infantile idea of God speaking everything, like, every, every, like, notion that comes into your mind that isn't the predictable result of your flesh must be God speaking, not only will you attribute God speaking to stuff you never should and do idiotic things sometimes, but you also won't even realize your own emotional maturity. You won't even know yourself. And you won't be able to thank God. So instead of—in that context, instead of that woman saying, like, well, oh, what's God telling me? Well, she should have broken up with her boyfriend and then thank God for the work of his spirit of working in her to show her what she should do and then giving her the courage and the power to do it. Does that make sense? And, and the third thing is, and I've talked about this some so I won't talk about it much more, is, is that if you have the wrong understanding of the voice of God, it will make most people incredibly Neurotic and anxious and hurt. There will be some people who will accept a certain internal dishonesty, that the voice that sounds better, that's the Holy Spirit, and I'll just call that God's voice, and that works. Or some people really just be, will be gifted prophetically, and God just really does speak to them, and they, and they know it. And, and, then, and then you think that should be true of you, and you'll be like, why can't I? And then you'll have it. And then what happens is, what is actually the abnormal experience of like that guy We come up with a doctrine that, like, that's supposed to happen for everybody, right? And then you're like, what's going on with me? And then nothing. It's—you're fine. Have you heard the shepherd's voice? Do you—did you go to him objectively? Did you believe the gospel? You're his. Period. And so what that means is not you don't have the Holy Spirit. What that means is you do have the Holy Spirit. You do have the Holy Spirit. He's there. He's working. He's working maturity in you so that you can be improvisational, so that you can be free of the law, so that you can walk in the Spirit and live in self-sacrificial love and have the mind of Christ instead of just reading the Holy Spirit's sheet music every second. Right? And if you're immature in faith and you can't improv yet, there's always a few things you can do to improv. Like, always apologize. If you're like, at all think you should apologize, apologize in the most complete self-humiliating way possible. It almost always works. And there's a bunch of things like that that you can do. And as you grow, you'll, you'll get the nuance of it a little better, right? There's this verse in, in, in 2 Timothy that says this, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity." It's pretty likely he's referring— See, part of the thing is we, we read the word spirit in the Bible in all kinds of different ways. We don't know if the word spirit there should be capitalized— Or small case, because we don't actually know if what Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit that God gave you, or the nature of the spirit of the what God has given us in Christ. And here's the reason it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's the Holy Spirit Himself or the work of the Holy Spirit working redemption inside of us. This is true of both things. The spirit God has given us is not a spirit of timidity or fear or anxiety about hearing his voice or whatever. He gives us a spirit of power, courage, love, and we often translate it like um, self-control now, but it's literally the Greek word for prudence, which, that's not a sexy word, right? You're like, that's like flannel and overalls. But, listen, the experience of it is unbelievable because what prudence means is, here's what prudence means. You know what to do in the particular situation that you're in That's what prudence essentially means You have the proper sort of balance of spirit and maturity That when a particular thing happens You know how to think about it, how to feel about it, and how to act towards it That's an amazing gift Like, like change the, spell the word backwards and try to pronounce it But like, you want that thing Why <laughs> not you like the word prudence You want that thing That is the improvisational work of the spirit Right? Which means that the where we probably will end up is this, is that once we realize that the work of the Spirit is really concrete, it's not really that mystical. It is proven by its fruits, so you absolutely can't cheat. Right? It's not like a facile kind of like hearing God's voice in my heart, but it is this whole multifaceted everything that God is doing in you is by the Spirit, including if God speaks to you. But it's everything God is doing in you. He has spoken to you in the Bible and in his Christ. And he told you a lot. So if you get too aggravated about what he's not telling you, just read your Bible, believe in Jesus, right? There's a ton just to hear from God right there. And oftentimes we don't listen to it. There's so much he's given, right? And then we have to live in this improvisational way that has to come out of our maturity, which a lot of us, we don't have. So that's why it's important to recognize That most of the references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament refer to the Holy Spirit's presence as a presence of empowerment. That the Holy Spirit comes with power. Sometimes that's power to like heal and destroy diseases and raise the dead and like, right? But the Bible, actually one place Paul says, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that's working to redeem you. So your spiritual substance, the spiritual substance that's growing inside of you, the work of Christ that's making you into a mature creature, right? That's the same power that makes dead people alive again permanently. Okay, now think about that. You see, you, you should be terribly depressed if the first four points are the only points. There's this verse in Romans that makes people who have read their Bibles uncomfortable. Which is kind of ironic because, of course, it's in the Bible. And he says this. The Apostle Paul says this. It's towards the end of the book of Romans. He says, in Romans 15, 13 and 14, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him—that's your part—as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope—how? How is that going to happen? That sounds good, right? Does it overflowing with hope sound good? sounds good, especially if it's made up of joy and peace. I mean, that sounds like a, mm, right? He says this, that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this insane sentence, okay? This is insane. This is heresy on its own. Without the Holy Spirit coming right before it, it would be terrible. But after those two words— he can say this, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete or perfect in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Can you, can you believe that? Okay, listen, if you haven't read the book of Romans, okay, this is the same book that in chapter 3, it's like, Oh man, human beings are like the worst possible thing. Their throats are open graves. None of them do anything good. Nobody's righteous. No, not one. Everybody's terrible. The Jews are terrible. The Gentiles are terrible. Everybody's terrible. Everybody hates God. Nobody wants to follow God. Everybody should go to hell. Every, uh, sins, wages sin or death. Everybody's going down. It's terrible. it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. Humans are terrible. You're terrible. Like, there's no boasting, because only salvation should by total generosity and grace. It's like, you're awful. You're awful. You're awful. You're awful. Right? All the way through till chapter 4, right? And then chapter 5, he's like, but listen, you know, God does crazy stuff in people, right? And so from chapters 4 and 5, all the way through till this passage, he's talking about, like, the work God does in people through faith by the Spirit, right? And it is so profound that those ridiculously terrible human beings, which is us, he gets in and he says, listen, the God of all hope can fill you with joy and peace. The kind that will so overflow your spirit that hope is spilling over the top. Hope in in all good things. Hope in the glory of God. Hope in the beauty of the truth. Just pouring over the top of you. You don't even have to be bumped to spill. You're just spilling everywhere because there's too much. There's something coming from the inside. And he says, it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. The power in you. Promised, present, present. Exhibiting itself in fruit It is powerful Your flesh is powerful Listen, you know your flesh is powerful Just like play the, play the video of your life Your flesh is powerful Snide, evil, wicked thoughts The hatred, the, the dissension the, the arguing, the whatever Like you know that your flesh is powerful Because it's controlled you And you've been its slave but Listen It is nothing like the power that makes dead people alive forever it is nothing like the power inside of you. And all, the only part that's on this is for you. There's only one little part for you. It's may the God of hope fill you. That's what God is doing with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So you trust in him. You hear the voice of that shepherd. He calls and you say yes. And you come to him and you trust him to direct you in self-sacrificial love. You trust him to reveal his character, his kingdom wishes, the mind of Christ, and to build in you true virtue. And through that to teach you how to improv in the work of the Spirit. And there's only one power that can do that, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has promised it. It doesn't matter if you've heard his voice. I don't care if you have followed Jesus for 75 years, and you have never experienced anything you would feel like was a revelation. You've never had a weird dream. You've never been like, well, God spoke to me. No, that's ever happened to you. None of that matters. If you belong to the shepherd, you have the power that raised Jesus from the dead. If your life produced any of those fruits, you have the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Nobody will tear you out of his arms. Trust him, he might speak to you too. But man, that's cherries, that's not ice cream, that's not even dinner. Eat the wholesome meal of the promises of God And the work of Christ And if somebody throws a chariot at you Like catch it Because it's fun and it's, it's extra And it's grace and it's just overflowing don't confuse, the, don't confuse the fireworks that God pours out Because he's so rich over you To think that that's the main thing he's doing He wants you to have just one master So you're no longer torn He wants you to seek his kingdom and his righteousness because it's the only thing worth seeking. And he wants you to trust him so that the God of all hope can fill you with peace and joy that's overflowing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, please help us to either recognize your voice and come to you right now and believe or to take comfort in The voice of the gospel over us That you died and rose for us Called us to put our trust in you And you enabled us to trust you And therefore you've given us your spirit And we pray that you would Help us to so trust you So that the The desires of the spirit would come into us And we would set our minds on them That we'd set our passions upon them That it would be the prevailing preference of our heart In every moment And that we would walk with you And therefore beautifully walk by your Spirit through our lives, no matter how complicated they are, no matter how repetitive they are, no matter what they look like, we would walk with you. Help us, please, Holy Spirit, work in us in that way, in Jesus' name.